Welcome to Explore the Future, the podcast that has conversations about how a new wave of digital skills will be required in the fourth industrial revolution. We speak to those passionate about how technology will shape our lives and hear from aspiring young data scientists to experienced CEOs on how they think the world will change. Okay, so today I've got Ayobonga Kawe. He's got a colorful resume. He's a development economist, a radio presenter, a columnist, and an activist. And today we're going to be talking about data science and the fourth industrial revolution. Welcome, uh, Ayobonga. Yeah, thanks, Sean. And uh, yeah, hello to everybody. I mean, before I uh, kick off this, this discussion, is my memory correct? You, you were our guest speaker at our first graduation ceremony in 2018. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and quite interesting, I guess, to see that first cohort. I think you guys had a partnership with BCX at the time. And uh, I'd be really interested to find out, I guess, how, you know, how you've been able to grow your cohorts thereafter. But uh, a really great project. And I was quite grateful that you guys called me up to come and deliver some remarks there. Yeah, so no, that was a, an inspiring uh, presentation. I remember it clearly, and I think we've actually got it on, on video still. Mm. But just a quick recap. So that cohort, which was our first, of the 100 that went through, I think 97 graduated, and then 94 got employment at an average salary of 300, 360,000 rand, which is incredible for a cohort that were, were uh, in the main uh, from disadvantaged communities and often just with the matrix. So, so yeah, that was a fantastic outcome. And then to your question, we've... We've sort of grown that uh, from 100 in Cape Town. Uh, now we've got probably 300 on campus in Cape Town, Joburg, Durban, and another two, 300 online. So yeah, probably six times bigger and across, across South Africa. So it's been a busy few years. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's great to hear. And I mean, I guess it's really part of what, uh, part of what we want to talk about today, which is, you know, how do you think about reskilling, um, in anticipation for uh, a restructuring of the labor market? I, I think a lot of people talk up how, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, all of the technology is going to, you know, have a displacing effect on new jobs and the kind of jobs that we have without recognizing that, you know, all exponential technology like that, it might be semiconductors and some of the innovation that has happened in that industry that has done massive things for computing power right through to even the printing press. And all of those things have knock-on effects in different jobs in different subsectors of the of the economy. And it's the same everywhere across the world. And I think we've seen some similar things in in the economic history of this country as well. So so I think the debate in South Africa has largely focused on, you know, some of the, I guess, downside. And of course, there will be some downside in sectors that are going to have to make some structural transition, in some cases away from analog to digital technology and what all of that is going to mean. But I think a lot of the other innovations that are very deep innovations in artificial intelligence, uh, big data, uh, some of those are probably, you know, for South Africa, a few decades down the pike rather than maybe immediate concerns in my view. Yeah. So, so definitely want to chat about all of that and to get your, you know, views and advice almost to, to corporate South Africa. But before that, our first question to every guest is, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? I mean, at some point I wanted to play for the pro tiers. And then at some point, uh, I think I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, by the time I think I got to matric, I'd settled on doing accounts. And then I think I didn't get into the program. So I ended up doing economics. And and yeah, here I am now. Okay. And, and, and what does now look like? I mean, I introduced you with the, the sort of radio presenter, activist, uh, development economist. But what, what does your average week look like? I'm doing quite a few things at the moment, uh, the broadcasting work. Um, I also run my own advisory, you know, and analysis business. And in addition to that, I'm also doing a bit of teaching at the moment at WITS. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a few things I'm working on at the moment. But uh, yeah, we can definitely talk about some of that 
it's it's a mix of things but i think i always knew that i would be going into business uh, i always knew i'd be going i guess into some form of policy role policy function and i do quite a bit of that work as well um advisory work in government and outside of government as well so let's jump right into this thing called the fourth industrial revolution so you know it's talked about a lot it's a buzzword that you know is read at every uh, second paper you pick up i mean how how would you describe the fourth industrial revolution like what is that uh, thing in your head so I think what for me it's done and conceptually this is what for me has made the most sense is that it's created in many ways a different paradigm. So what a lot of people call the digital realm and seeing that as a new phase of real estate. Uh, so we've lived, I think, for much of the second, third industrial revolutions, you know, in the planetary sphere uh, where, you know, you're making uh, money out of mining uh, mineral products or, or primary agriculture or doing all of those things and adding value to those things and your economy is based on that. What we've got now is primarily an economy based on the supercomputing power that we have at our disposal relative to maybe uh, our um, predecessors is a situation where the real physical realm is able to interface with the digital realm and humans are able to interact and be, you know, existentially be who they are in all of these different realms. And what it also does, I think, if we are to think of it from the vantage point of South Africa as the most unequal society in the world, is that it's also created the space to reproduce some of the good and the bad things about our society across these two different realms. Um, and, and you already start to see this, I think, uh, uh, with uh, the Internet of Things, uh, you know, with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, and this transformation of, I guess, our digital patterns in that realm what we do online, what we don't do online, into something that now can be, I guess, you know, harvested, packaged and monetized. Uh, and that in itself has created a new economy. And so the fourth industrial revolution I see in that sense um, as something that has the potential for considerable social impact, but also has the very high likelihood and potential for reproducing all of the really, really bad things about us. Okay. And let's just explore that and the impacts of that, particularly for South Africa. So, you know, South Africa is typically quite good in the real physical mining and agricultural world. You know, what's your view of how, how well we are placed or not placed to move into this, this sort of next frontier? So, so I think, I mean, there's a lot of, and South Africa is always an interesting one, and that's why I, I try to foreground this, this idea of thinking about this through the lens of inequality as well. Because, you know, Sean, we've got parts of our agriculture in this country that are export potential, where you can find some of our best wines, some of our best product in some of the kitchens and tables in Europe and elsewhere, right? Yeah. But then you also have a small-scale agriculture that is very subsistence, has difficulty in accessing markets. And so I guess if we're talking about automation, if we're talking about all of the benefits of exponential technology in the fourth industrial revolution, the likelihood is that it's all of the bigger players who have dominant market shares, massive operations already, who are likely to, to be the, I guess, first adopters. But even in that case, many of them won't adopt it because uh, you must remember that, you know, a lot of if you think about the Internet of Things uh, and if you think about, you know, remote agriculture, you can't do that if you don't have the baseline console or fiber to be able to do that in the first instance, unless you're going to be deploying a very expensive satellite solution on the countryside. And so there's all of these real technological, in some cases, and also capital limitations to the adoption of some of this technology. And that's why. You haven't found, even in the more advanced parts of our industry, you haven't found this mass adoption of automation, this mass adoption of, you know, some, some of what comes with the fourth industrial revolution. And a lot of that has to do, one, with the availability and accessibility of capital, 
The second one, and, and you've seen many companies even going to the government, getting incentives to bring in equipment in the textile sector, for instance, uh, where, you know, historically, it's one of the biggest employers of people. We all have to wear clothes. But the reality is that in many instances, some of their technology is still in the analog level. I mean, in the industry I operate in, um, you know, telecommunications and broadcasting, we are still operating in the analog paradigm by and large, right? Um, and we haven't made the transition, even from a spectrum approach from analog to digital, largely because, uh, you know, we haven't done that. And so that has a ripple effect on the cost at which people are able to access connectivity and be able to engage in that digital realm. And I think that, for me, is what widens inequality. That's what makes it more difficult. And that's what's also going to limit, I think, the adoption of even some of the good stuff. But the big question is always going to be, how do we make sure that on the privacy side of things, on the digital equity side of things, we make sure that we cover our bases so that this advance doesn't become one that makes us more divided, more polarized, and more unequal. So to your first point around us being quite slow to, to adopt these technologies and automate in those specific industries, what can we be doing differently to accelerate that, if anything? So I think maybe the question is, should we be wanting to accelerate it? We've got a very unique challenge in South Africa where you know, the bulk of the people who are unemployed have limited and relatively no skill, right? If your unemployment challenge is primarily a challenge of getting many of those who have limited skill, let alone in the digital sense, um, to engage in the labor market, you probably don't want to make that advance as rapidly as maybe some other places are doing. And so that's your one limitation, in addition to maybe other challenges. Uh, Of course, I talked about bulk infrastructure in the first instance. So you could have the most high-tech factory in an urban center like Johannesburg. But if you don't have fifth generation technology, network technology getting to that place, then it's pointless. And so in a way, it's also about saying, how do we sequence the kind of interventions that will allow us to make the best use of some of the exponential technology that's coming uh, with what we have? I mean, you know, one of the things I sometimes do, I also work as a sort of a hobbyist photographer, and we also run a sort of small production company where we do some work for a few companies. And one of the things you quickly realize is that even with the product mix that is emerging in the photography space, you're seeing a massive shift that is reliant on very fast, very reliable kind of technology for you to get the best footage. Now, if you apply that to self-driving cars, you already now have a situation where if you don't make sure that every patch of ground in your country is covered with connectivity, then that business case doesn't make sense in that context. And I think... We need to be able to to also speak about the technology as an enabler of certain things, of certain business cases, rather than maybe foreground and lead with, you know, do we have to go into the 4IR, do we have to go into the next one? I think we do. But the big question is, how do you, in your sequencing, make sure that you do so in a fashion that is as equitable as possible? We've got the worst inequality in the world. We've got some of the highest unemployment. If you automate a lot of these things, jobs go away, right? Because now machines are replacing humans. And there is an, an outcome if it's done too fast in the wrong sequence, where unemployment gets a lot worse, right? And suddenly you go from a, a, a t- terrible unemployment to catastrophic unemployment. Mm. So I think you're exactly right. I guess the next question is, you know, do we have the right level of understanding at a, at a sort of at the government to sort of sequence these things and set the right uh, uh, policies? Government is a contested terrain, right? And, and I do think that there is an understanding, there is an awareness within government that the sequencing is going to be critical. It's going to be very important. But all of those things move beyond a five-year cycle. And we maybe need to ask this question, what does a five-year cycle incentivize in how governments act? 
In many instances, you find that so government will focus on a medium-term strategic framework and maybe have a longer-term planning cycle like the NDP. But if you don't concretize that in very detailed sequence of what it is that you're going to do in 2021, 2022, 2023, and right through to 2027, you're not going to be able to have line of sight over what progress you're making, if at all. So the first instance is really how do you embed some kind of innovation and digitized planning within government that is able to, on the one end, predict and forecast what's coming down the line, but is also able to make investments now. For instance, let me give you an example. We've got an energy transition that is underway in South Africa. Big part of that transition and shift away just from ESCOM is going to require that we have the necessary skill to operate very digitized wind farms, solar farms, everything else on the generation side, but also on the distribution side of the energy. Have we, in our vocational and artisanal training system, invested in those skills? No. And yet we already have an integrated resource plan that knows that by 2030 and 2035 and 2040, the components of renewables in our entire energy mix will be maybe higher than what we have currently from coal-generated electricity. So, so we, we have line of sight over what it is that we want to achieve, but we're not making the necessary investments, shifts and changes in how we train people and how we upskill people to be able by that time to no longer having to be importing engineers from Italy to come and help us with our, you know, renewables generation or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, our business is education. We train students, you know, these digital skills, specifically data science. And absolutely, I mean, from our vantage point, yeah, there's, there's lots of colleges and universities, but they're teaching redundant skills that were set 20 years ago and, and accreditation cycles that take seven years to get through. So, I mean, I absolutely agree the the skills required to do these things are not coming through at the right velocity, which is a, which is a, a challenge. And so also you have to shift your... You know, this idea of recognition of prior learning or prior experiences is, is critical. So you have to be able, even when people are already in the workplace, to create the scope to rapidly recognize what they've learned, certify and signal that, and so that they're able to continue and do maybe higher level work or even be able to transition into some of those worlds. We don't have the luxury of putting people into three, four-year, five-year courses for them to be able to come out and technology has already shifted after that. It feels like you should be on our board. This is uh, this is the message uh, we believe in and, and tell our stakeholders. Uh, absolutely, it's it's bite-sized, consumable pieces of learning with badges and you know, you're sort of in an iterative, agile way. You know, learn. And uh, and what we think the most important skill is the ability to learn how to learn because it's a lifelong journey that never ends, right? So very different to uh, the degrees of the past where it's this three-year stop-start, get the certificate, never mm. never learn again. Okay, I mean, what, who do you think are going to be the big winners and losers, I guess, in South Africa and globally, uh, you know, when we wake up in, in 2027? I think the big winner is going to be the consumer. You know, I was reading something earlier on today and somebody was talking about how the industrial revolution in the United Kingdom, the introduction of automation in some of the factories, while it displaced a lot of jobs, what it ended up doing was it created, you know, mass production of goods at such cheap prices that the labor demand itself ended up spiking the job of, you know, people who were sewers, uh, stitches and all of that. So the big question for me is which sectors are going to benefit, which ones uh, might necessarily lose their jobs. And I think all of the sectors really reliant on, on analog, in my view, are already being displaced even prior to us having this conversation. And I think many businesses who have a very historic and archaic business model, uh, are starting now to maybe step up to 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 the plate. I mean, I think of an Edcon, which uh, really, in terms of also stylistically, but also uh, business model wise, hasn't been able to adjust to what has been happening 
in the e-commerce space, in the fashion space, and in so doing has essentially lost out from being able to take first move advantage uh, or even acquiring some of the players that were emerging in that space. So so I think the, the biggest winners for me, I think are going to be the logistics industry um, in the first instance, because remember, you still have to do all of the stuff in the physical realm. You might be shopping and doing everything else in the digital sense, but somebody still has to deliver the stuff to you. And I think the logistics actors are going to be uh, a, a big player. I think you're also going to have uh, an entire industry of repair, maintenance, uh, and technician type jobs that are going to be emerging in response to this. You know, and I say this, we've got a project that we're running out in the Eastern Cape where we're providing free Wi-Fi hotspots. And we've realized that the two big roles that we're going to be recruiting for as we scale that project, just based on what we're learning now during the pilot, is in the first instance, the kind of people that are going to come troubleshoot on-site, network technicians, uh, and people are going to do configurations. The second type of job is going to be the person who can analyze the data on the back end. So somebody who can say, in this hotspot, this is the frequency of people that are logging in, this is what we're seeing. And then I think the third type of role is a digital marketing function that is able to say, with the data I'm getting from the system and analyzed as it is, how do I use that as an input to give strategic advice to the brands that want to maybe uh, put out content or even put out certain brand messages on the platform? So you can already see, although that might have displaced the classifieds in the local newspaper, or it might have displaced the people who were selling adverts on billboards. What it has also done is to create a layer of new jobs in a different value chain. And I think we need to be able to speak about, you know, how does all of the advances and innovation that we're talking about effectively create new basis for entirely new value chains uh, that we might not have thought about maybe in the 20th century or even before that. Do you think South Africa will emerge a big winner? And or what do we need to do to make sure we emerge as a big winner? I think South Africa will emerge as a big winner based on... And it's ironic that I say this based on its inequality, right? So based on the fact that we already have a very sophisticated ecosystem of innovation in South Africa that sits both in the physical realm and in the digital one, but also sits in the private and venture equity space and in the public sector. So there's a few interfaces there that I found very quite, quite interesting when I think about it. But I think what might lead to the downfall or our losses might be the fact that we haven't been able to distribute the benefits of that technology equitably across our society. And, you know, this this whole idea that, uh, you know, what is it, rising tide uh, lifts all ships hasn't certainly happened in South Africa. And so until we're able to confront the difficulty of taking fiber, you know, we celebrate uh, now in 2019, 2020, taking fiber into the largest township in the country, Soweto when we should have done that probably in the 2000s or 2001 or, or somewhere there. Or we should have done some basic infrastructure provision by that time if we wanted to make sure that it's equitably shared. So that's the big investment that I think a lot of people are going to have to make. But I think South Africa's real opportunity is not in South Africa. South Africa's real opportunity is in how do we take innovations from here into our continent. Uh, you've got two markets on our continent, which I find very interesting. Nigeria has got about 190 million people or so in their population. Ethiopia has just over 100 million people. Now, South Africa has got half of what Ethiopia has, or just over half, population-wise. So we're not as big a market as we'd like to think. But if we're able to take those innovations to solve problems, not just here at home, but problems across our continent, it might be able to take an innovation that would have served 55 million people into an innovation that serves 
a billion strong continent? And I think that's the question we need to be really trying to push a lot more of in how we think about strategy, in how we think about scaling the kind of businesses that we're trying to build. We've got lots of students, right? So I said 600-ish and lots of people who listen to this podcast. I mean, what would be your advice to a youngster, you know, between 15 and 25, whose whole life is ahead of them in this new world that's that you're talking about? So, I mean, I think they probably would have advice for me. You know, I mean, if I think about how youngsters have taken on technology in a way that I think maybe you know, some of us who had a glimpse of analog when we were a bit younger probably would not would not really think about. I mean, I think of Tetris, for instance, um, and all of those game thingies that people used to have. And you think about the innovations that have happened in the gaming space. So they probably would have more things to say to me. But my only input would be this. If you've got an idea, try it. And I think even if at some point you feel you want to give up on it or you are forced by circumstance to drop it, you will have learned so much in just venturing and doing it than if you had just sat on that couch, theorized about it, and you know thought that somebody was going to come like manna from heaven and give it to you. So I think even the barriers to trying to implement stuff and trying to do stuff teach us a lot about what we need to do in our society, where the opportunities are, and primarily also what it is that we need to change about uh, how we're doing things that will make sure that this country remains competitive, that it remains uh, you know, a, a, a dominant economic player, it continues to improve uh, and expand its productive capabilities. Because every single day, you know this, young work seekers are joining the workforce. Um, and increasingly, we've got a ticking time bomb if we're not going to be able to find productive, engaging things that for them to do. Um, and some of those things are in the digital realm, and some of them have to continue to be in the physical realm as well. Hey, Bonga, thanks for your time. I, I absolutely love that. It's incredibly insightful. And hopefully, um, we'll see you at a graduation ceremony sometime soon. Awesome. Take care. Cheers, Sean. Brilliant. Thanks so much, man. I'm Sean Dipnall, the CEO of the Explore Data Science Academy. You have been listening to Explore the Future. We're a next-generation learning institution on a mission to teach the latest digital skills in new, creative, and engaging ways. We believe that these skills will equip learners and the companies they work for to thrive in the future. We're particularly curious about how AI will fundamentally change the way we live and work over the next decade. If you have any questions for me on how AI, data science and technology will change us, or on anything else for that matter, please email me at sean at explore-ai.net. That's S-H-A-U-N at explore-ai.net. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.